Welcome to the Publishers Podcast, your place for psychiatry sound bites. Hi, I'm John Shelton, publisher of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. In the next 30 minutes, I'll bring you up to date on the important peer-reviewed research and reviews from our April 2011 issue. Let's get started. Our lead article investigates the addition of non-drug interventions to low-dose antipsychotic therapy for young people at ultra-high risk for psychosis. The authors report interim six-month results from a 12-month randomized control trial. The primary aim of the study was to determine if cognitive therapy plus low-dose risperidone was superior to cognitive therapy alone and if either was superior to supportive therapy alone. The main outcome measure was whether the patients transitioned to a full-threshold psychotic disorder. The authors also looked at the effect of these treatments on psychiatric symptoms, psychosocial functioning, and quality of life. The study included 115 individuals who were 14 to 30 years old, Eight subjects developed psychotic disorder at six months, but overall rates of transition to psychosis were lower than expected, particularly in the control supportive therapy plus placebo group, which may have accounted for the negative finding. No differences were observed between the groups in primary or secondary measures. These negative findings at six months are of note, however, as they are in contrast to significant treatment effects found in earlier research. The study may have been underpowered to find any difference between groups. Alternately, all treatments may be equally effective or equally ineffective at six months. The difficulties with recruitment suggest a need for multi-site studies. The difficulties with medication adherence, plus evidence of a declining transition rate, suggest the need to investigate more benign and simple options as first-line treatment, perhaps introducing antipsychotics only if there is evidence of persistent symptom or deterioration. The researchers look to the 12-month results to shed more light on these important issues. Another affliction we often hear about among the younger generation is methamphetamine abuse and suicide. This next case control study sought to identify factors associated with suicide mortality in patients with methamphetamine dependence. Although the recreational use of methamphetamine has waxed and waned in popularity, the development of a new dosage form a pure crystal called ice, and an inhalable route of administration have spurred a worldwide spike in methamphetamine use since the 1990s. Similarities between methamphetamine dependence and schizophrenia have suggested that methamphetamine use may lead to suicide, yet until now no study has yet explored suicide mortality among methamphetamine users. The study sample consisted of nearly 1,500 methamphetamine-dependent inpatients whose meth abuse began in their early 20s. From this group, sociodemographic and clinical information was compared between the 38 patients who were identified as having committed suicide and 76 living patients matched for age, 
sex, and year of index admission. At the time of patients' most recent admission, financial independence was found to lower the risk for suicide, whereas presence of visual hallucinations heightened suicide risk. Financial independence continued to coincide with lower suicide risk in the time period after discharge, whereas suicide attempt and depressive syndrome were associated with an increased risk of completed suicide after discharge. These findings suggest that bolstering protective factors and reducing risk factors may help prevent death by suicide in methamphetamine-dependent patients. In addition, the study challenges clinicians to reduce suicide among this patient group by carefully examining patients for these risk factors, as well as identifying high-risk patients as soon as possible. The next article in the April issue examines suicide from a different angle. As we know, antidepressants have been implicated in leading to suicide in some patients who were not necessarily suicidal. Yet suicide is still a grave concern for patients whose depression is resistant to standard treatment. So the question is, how do we reduce the depression without increasing the risk of suicide? To address their concern over both of these aspects and the treatment of depression, the authors wanted to learn whether patients who received adjunctive antipsychotics to relieve their depression became suicidal as their depression improved. They opted to pool data from two double-blind placebo-controlled trials in which aripiprazole was added to standard treatment for major depressive disorder. They looked at data in 737 patients who were not at significant risk for suicide, but who proved treatment-resistant to eight weeks of the standard medications for MDD. They found that none of the patients who took adjunctive aripiprazole for six weeks experienced treatment-emergent suicidal ideation. These patients also had no increase in adverse events like akathisia, which can be related to suicidality. The aripiprazole-treated patients even showed significant improvement from baseline suicidality measures. Even though no suicides were reported, two of the patients receiving adjunctive placebo did experience some suicidal ideation. The authors hope next to study whether the same benefits hold true if an adjunctive antipsychotic is given to an at-risk population. In our final article on the subject of suicide, Brower and colleagues looked at how another variable, the use of prescription sedative hypnotics, was related to suicidality over a 12-month period. They used data from nearly 5,700 respondents in the National Comorbidity Survey Replication, which drew from the general U.S. population. Their analysis showed that the use of prescription sedative hypnotics in the past year was significantly associated with suicidal thoughts, plans, and attempts. In fact, the use of these drugs was a stronger predictor of suicidal thoughts and suicide attempts than insomnia was. 
The authors note a number of possible explanations for the link between sleeping pills and suicide. These include, one, patients' increased access to a suicide method. Two, the possibility that the risk results from a pre-existing physical or psychiatric illness that is associated with insomnia. Three, the fact that insomnia without comorbid illness has itself been linked to suicide. And four, the fact that these drugs cause CNS depression. This study is particularly interesting because the data are recent enough to include the new generation of non-benzodiazepine benzodiazepine receptor agonists, namely Zolpidem, Zalplon, and Ezopiclone. Although the study does not show causality, Clinicians should recognize that patients taking these types of sedative hypnotics have a marker of increased risk for suicidality. We already know that patients with major depressive disorder and high levels of anxiety are less responsive to antidepressant treatment than are depressed individuals without anxiety. The next article presents a post-hoc analysis of data from patients with insomnia and anxious depression to compare the effect of the insomnia medication ezopiclone given in co-therapy with SSRI versus the effect of placebo co-therapy with an SSRI. Dr. Fava and colleagues pooled data from two randomized controlled trials one in patients with dsm 4 insomnia and comorbid major depressive disorder, and the other in patients with dsm 4 tr insomnia and comorbid generalized anxiety disorder. Patients who had a 17-item Hamilton Depression Rating Scale score of 14 or higher, excluding insomnia items, and an anxiety somatization factor score of 7 or higher were designated as having anxious depression. In the combined data set of 347 patients with insomnia and comorbid anxious depression, 8 weeks of ezopiclone co-administered with an SSRI resulted in significantly greater improvements in insomnia, reductions in depression severity, and improvement in response rates compared to placebo co-administration. However, there were no significant differences in anxiety somatization scores, in response rates when insomnia items were excluded, or in remission rates. After acknowledging study limitations, The authors state the need for prospective research with insomnia medication co-therapy to determine whether these modest antidepressant effects can be replicated and anxiolytic effects demonstrated. And now on to one of our favorite subjects, but most challenging disorders, depression. In light of the poor compliance often found with antidepressant treatment, interest in the use and evaluation of alternative or complementary therapies has grown. Although several randomized controlled trials have tested the effectiveness of exercise as a treatment for patients with depression, findings to date have been inconclusive. To address this knowledge gap, 
The authors in this study conducted a systematic review and meta-analysis of all randomized controlled trials on the effectiveness of exercise in adults diagnosed with depression in a clinical setting. Analysis of the small number of trials deemed high quality, that is, those trials that included adequately concealed random allocation, blinded outcome assessment, and intention-to-treat analysis, revealed no strong evidence of benefit of exercise. Moreover, the studies that included a long-term follow-up suggested that antidepressant benefits that immediately result from exercise do not persist in the longer term after cessation of exercise programs. Overall, the antidepressant effects of exercise were found to be minimal. The small number of trials, however, limits the ability to draw conclusions about the antidepressant effects of different types and durations of exercise programs and highlights the need for more high-quality studies of this intervention. The use of antidepressants in people without diagnosable mental disorders is the topic of our next article. The authors of this study highlight the importance of this issue by citing evidence that, on the one hand, shows an increase in antidepressant use, and on the other hand, raises concerns about the drug's questionable efficacy in people with less severe indications. People who take the drugs can have difficulties when discontinuing, and the drugs can cause negative side effects and associated consequences. The need for information on this topic is growing. In cross-sectional data from a nationally representative sample of over 20,000 adults in the United States, the authors have contributed to this need by examining the prevalence and correlates of antidepressant use among individuals without mental disorder diagnoses. They also looked for indicators of need, such as sub-threshold mental disorders, suicidal behaviors, or hospitalization that might explain the use of antidepressants in the absence of mental disorder. The authors found that over a quarter of individuals who took an antidepressant in the past year did not meet criteria for any lifetime diagnosis assessed. Respondents taking antidepressants in the absence of a lifetime diagnosis tended to be older, white, and female. All indicators of need, except past-year suicidal behavior, were significant predictors, with nearly 90% of individuals taking antidepressants in the absence of a lifetime diagnosis, endorsing at least one indicator of need. The study results, the authors conclude, suggest that antidepressant use among individuals without psychiatric diagnoses is common in the United States and is typically motivated by other indicators of need. They call on researchers to examine optimal treatment modalities for individuals suffering from sub-threshold disorders and other forms of psychological distress. Next, dysthymic disorder is a depressive condition defined by a mild yet chronic course, persistent symptoms, and an insidious onset. 
There has been much debate over the relative merits of pharmacotherapy as a reasonable primary treatment option for dysthymic disorder, and it is clear that effective treatment for this disorder is an ongoing need. This group of authors sought by way of meta-analysis to determine the efficacy of antidepressants in dysthymic disorder and to compare antidepressant and placebo response rates between major depressive disorder and dysthymic disorder. PubMed and Medline databases were searched for double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trials of antidepressants used as monotherapy for treatment of major depressive disorder or dysthymic disorder between 1980 and 2009. Antidepressants were defined as those with a letter of approval by U.S., Canadian, or European drug regulatory agencies for treatment of major depressive disorder or dysthymic disorder. Possible studies were identified by cross-referencing the term placebo with each of the approved drugs. According to a predetermined inclusion criteria, a total of 194 studies were eligible for inclusion. Of these, 177 focused on MDD and 17 on dysthymic disorder. The authors found that antidepressant therapy was significantly more effective than placebo in dysthymic disorder and that placebo response rates were significantly lower in dysthymic disorder than in major depressive disorder. This meta-analysis suggests that the margin of efficacy of antidepressants was larger for dysthymic disorder than for major depressive disorder. The authors posit that longer-term data on antidepressant treatment of dysthymic disorder are essential. There have been changes in recent years in the way placebo-controlled trials supporting new drug applications are designed and conducted. One of the changes that's gotten some attention lately is the globalization of research. It is expected that by the year 2012, one year from now, about 65% of FDA-regulated trials will be conducted at sites outside the United States. Researchers at the FDA gathered efficacy data from 81 clinical trials of antidepressants conducted between 1983 and 2008 to examine differences in effect sizes and success rates in terms of trial locations, study dates, sample size, study duration, dosing regimen, and baseline disease severity. Average disease severity in the trials decreased over time, and severity proved to be a more important factor in study outcome than study duration, dosing sample size, time period, or geographic location. The authors also found that treatment effect has declined over time in MDD trials, but the reasons for this remain elusive. They emphasize that research into these considerations will become increasingly important as globalization of clinical trials continues to increase. Our next article discusses velazidone, a new antidepressant from Merck approved for market in January of this year under the trade name Vibrid. These authors report on a double-bind study of velazidone. Its selectivity for reuptake inhibition of serotonin 
relative to norepinephrine or dopamine is comparable to fluoxetine, but its potency for serotonin reuptake inhibition is 30-fold greater. This study of 481 patients is the second eight-week phase three study to demonstrate the efficacy and tolerability of velazidone in major depressive disorder. Patients assigned to velazidone were titrated to a daily dose of 40 milligrams. The velazidone group had significantly greater improvement than the placebo group, according to the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale, which was the primary outcome measure. Velazidone was also superior to placebo on other measures, including both the Hamilton Depression and Hamilton Anxiety Rating Scales and the Clinical Global Impressions Scales. The most common adverse events seen with velazidone were diarrhea and nausea. Effect on sexual function was minimal. Weight changes were small and similar to those seen with placebo. No new concerns regarding its safety profile over eight weeks of treatment were noted. We'll be anxious to see articles come through the JCP expanding on this knowledge base after results of long-term treatment can be obtained. In our next article, we're taken back to more traditional therapies for depression, but rather than look at treatment response alone, the authors examine brain activation. We know that antidepressants have different mechanisms of action, but the exact effect on the brain, and in particular, the effect on the brain's network of mood regulation, remain unclear. Additionally, no markers for therapy evaluation and response prediction are available at present. Such markers would facilitate drug development and treatment. Thus, the authors describe how they use functional magnetic resonance imaging, or fMRI, to investigate the effects of mirtazapine and venlafaxine on brain activation and to identify predictors for therapy response. Functional magnetic resonance imaging is becoming established as a method of visualizing the action of drugs on the human brain. The authors hypothesize that mirtazapine and venlafaxine may have different region-specific effects. So they enrolled 24 untreated patients with major depressive disorder in a prospective randomized trial with mirtazapine and venlafaxine. FMRI was performed on the patients and 15 healthy controls at baseline and after four weeks. The primary measure on the FMRI was blood oxygen level dependence. The authors found that during treatment, a significant decrease of blood oxygen level dependence responses was seen in the hippocampus, basal ganglia, thalamus, and cerebellum of venlafaxine-treated patients, and a significant increase in these same responses was seen in the middle cingulate gyrus and supplementary motor area of mirtazapine-treated patients. The authors conclude that these fMRI results indicate that antidepressants with different mechanisms of action have different effects on brain function. It therefore seems that fMRI can be used for therapy evaluation and response prediction and can facilitate the development of new pharmaceuticals. Finally, let's look at a sometimes overlooked problem. 
one in which depression occurs as a side effect of treatment for a medical condition. Patients with chronic hepatitis C who are treated with interferon alpha-2A often withdraw from treatment and subsequently experience treatment failure because of antiviral-induced depression. Depression in chronic hepatitis C patients taking interferon can be treated with antidepressants. It is not known, however, whether it can be prevented in this patient population. In order to investigate this question, the authors conducted a randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, multi-centered trial. 133 chronic hepatitis C patients were randomly assigned to receive escitalopram or placebo during the first 12 weeks of interferon alpha-2A treatment for their hepatitis C. The investigators found that rates of depression were low, 5.4% overall, and did not differ between placebo and the escitalopram groups. Although there were significant improvements in both groups, reflected in scores in the Montgomery-Asberg Depression Rating Scale and the Hospital Anxiety and Depression Scale, there were no differences between the placebo and escitalopram groups. The investigators recommended that future studies be directed towards subpopulations of patients at high psychiatric risk. It's now time to review some new information regarding the old drug, clozapine. Although clozapine is very effective at treating schizophrenia, it's underused because of the serious, life-threatening side effect it can produce, agranulocytosis. But what if you could predict which patients might be prone to develop this life-threatening side effect? The primary objective in this next article was to identify and replicate a genetic marker that would predict a patient's risk of developing clozapine-induced agranulocytosis. A case-controlled approach was applied in two large independent cohorts of patients. Genetic variants in 74 candidate genes were analyzed in the discovery cohort, and significant findings were replicated in the second independent cohort. Between the two cohorts, the authors found the HLA-DQB1 gene in common. They further narrowed the sequence variants down to a single nucleotide polymorphism, 6672G2C. By looking at the positive predictive value, the authors were able to estimate that patients who carry this 6672G2C SNP marker are at a 17 times greater risk of developing clozapine-induced agranulocytosis compared to those who do not have the marker. This figure is 1,200% higher for the overall clozapine-treated population than the current blood monitoring system would predict. With a 1% prevalence of schizophrenia in the population, this means approximately 67,000 patients with schizophrenia in the United States, 1.3 million worldwide, are predicted to carry this higher-risk genotype. 
It may therefore be clinically useful to test schizophrenic patients for this genotype when deciding whether to begin or continue treatment with clozapine. If testing can provide adequate warning, then perhaps clozapine can once again be added as a first-line agent for the treatment of schizophrenia. Dr. Van Dorn and colleagues investigated the risk of arrest among patients with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder in a Florida Medicaid program. They performed a secondary data analysis in more than 36,000 patients. They organized data into treatment episodes that corresponded to continuous receipt of medication treatment. Investigators looked at seven variables. One, subjects with an arrest were compared to those without an arrest. Two, type of pharmacologic treatment was coded into two mutually exclusive categories. A prescription for one of seven atypical antipsychotic medications was coded as a second-generation antipsychotic. A prescription for any other antipsychotic medication was coded as a first-generation antipsychotic. Three, routine behavioral health services utilization was operationalized to include outpatient therapy, case management, or any other outpatient encounter that was not a crisis service, one-time assessment, or medication refill. Four, diagnosis was based on Medicaid data. Five, refill compliance was measured as the total number of medication episodes during the study. Six, other clinical predictors included psychiatric hospitalization and substance use. And seven, demographic covariance included age, sex, and race. Measures of these variables were used to calculate propensity scores based on the likelihood of receiving a second-generation antipsychotic prescription and a propensity weight was created based on exposure to initial treatment. After all was said and done, the investigators found that although second-generation antipsychotic episodes were not associated with reduced arrests compared to first-generation antipsychotic episodes, the interaction between outpatient services and second-generation antipsychotic episodes was significant. A second-generation antipsychotic episode with an outpatient visit during at least 80% of every 30-day period of the episode was associated with reduced arrests compared to second-generation antipsychotic episodes with fewer outpatient services. Limitations of the study included the reliance on Medicaid claims data. We had one article in this issue that talked specifically about post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. Acute stress disorder and PTSD are frequently observed after exposure to traumatic events. Both can be extremely debilitating disorders. PTSD occurs in approximately 20% of trauma victims, often resulting in significant impairment in physical, occupational, and social functioning. 80% of individuals with acute stress disorder may go on to develop PTSD. 
currently attempts to identify individuals at risk for the development of post-trauma disorders have been inconsistent. An attempt to limit the variable of stressor and have one that was clearly identifiable, the authors focused their study on a group of patients who survived the same type of trauma, severe burn injury. They examined heart rate and blood pressure and their potential effect on symptom clusters of acute stress disorder and PTSD. Heart rate and blood pressure were measured in patients at various time points following the trauma in the ambulance, emergency room, and burn unit. Patients were followed up for two years after discharge. Increased heart rate immediately following the major burn injury was associated with higher rates of acute stress disorder and PTSD after hospital discharge. Elevated heart rate levels measured at different time points were associated with the development of acute stress disorder. Heart rate is measured in the ambulance was associated with PTSD symptoms. While peritraumatic heart rate is most robustly associated with PTSD symptom severity, heart rate on admission to the burn unit also predicted the development of acute stress. Gender and avoidance symptoms appeared especially salient in this relationship, and these factors may aid in the identification of subgroups for which heart rate serves as a biomarker for PTSD. As noted in a recent synthesizing review, avoidance cluster symptoms are emerging as the strongest indicators for PTSD risk. Given this finding, it is potentially of great importance that future investigators examine the means by which heart rate measured early in the trauma is related to increased severity of future avoidance symptoms. In our last two articles, we'll review some current research on dementia. Nursing home residents often find themselves in an understimulating environment, spending the majority of time engaged in no meaningful activity and without much social contact, which results in boredom, loneliness, and behavioral problems. The next article is the first to systematically examine the impact of specific types of stimuli on affect in nursing home residents with dementia. Cognitive functioning, affect, and performance of activities of daily living were assessed for each participant, and daily baseline observations of affect were performed before stimulus sessions for comparison. Each participant was presented with 25 predetermined engagement stimuli over three weeks. These included categories for live social, simulated social, manipulative, work or task related, music and reading stimuli, or stimuli individualized to the participant's self-identity. Study analyses examined pleasure and interest as separate dependent variables and derived a new dependent measure of negative affect. There were significant differences between stimulus categories for pleasure and interest, but not for negative affect. Pleasure and interest were highest for the live social category, followed by self-identity and simulated social categories for pleasure and the manipulative category for interest. 
It is often assumed that music is an important stimulus activity in nursing homes, but the authors found the lowest levels of pleasure and interest for music. Participants with higher cognitive functioning had significantly higher ratings for pleasure, but there was also a differential effect of varying stimuli in persons with low cognitive functioning. Overall, social stimuli had the greatest impact on affect in residents with dementia. These findings are important, as affect is a major indicator of quality of life. Since live social stimuli are not always readily available in busy nursing home environments, simulated social stimuli can serve as an effective substitute. Development of biomarkers for early detection of Alzheimer's disease is a major clinical research goal. In this last article, the authors hypothesize that cardiovascular risk factors contribute to the pathogenesis of Alzheimer's disease and investigated whether certain cardiovascular risk markers, specifically midregional proadrenomedulin or MR-proADM, and midregional proatrial natriuretic peptide or MR-proANP, predict the major clinical milestone, conversion from pre-dementia mild cognitive impairment to manifest Alzheimer's disease. A group of patients with mild cognitive impairment was clinically followed for four to six years. The authors determined whether plasma concentrations of MR-pro-ADM and MR-pro-ANP at baseline predicted time to conversion from mild cognitive impairment to clinically diagnosed Alzheimer's disease. During follow-up, 42% of patients with mild cognitive impairment remained cognitively stable. 43% converted to possible and probable Alzheimer's disease, and 16% converted to other forms of dementia. Patients who converted to Alzheimer's or other forms of dementia showed increased concentrations of MR-pro-ANP and MR-pro-ADM compared to stable patients. This study shows that higher baseline concentrations of the two cardiovascular plasma markers MR-pro-ANP and MR-pro-ADM have predictive value in the progression from pre-dementia mild cognitive impairment to clinical Alzheimer's disease. Sensitivity was particularly high, which may recommend this test for first-stage screening in patients at risk for Alzheimer's disease. That's all we have for the April articles, but that's not all we have for the April issue. Please visit our website, psychiatrist.com, to find a free online CME activity of two of the articles we've covered here, as well as some interactive activities from our CME Institute. New this month is one on treatment, adherence, and schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder, one on algorithm-guided treatment for major depressive disorder, and one on adult ADHD. We also have three uniquely interesting letters. One discusses an alternative treatment for PTSD. Another talks about a fast-rising type of suicide prominent among females. And last is a case report on the use of ketamine infusion to treat OCD. 
Join us online for details on these pieces, as well as some interesting book reviews from the April issue of the Journal of Clinical Psychiatry. Thanks for listening. This is John Shelton signing off. I hope you'll join me in May for the next Publishers Podcast, Your Place for Psychiatry Soundbites.